0: Six, five, four,
1: three, two, one. The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to Hakeem Addy all about his brand new book with Alan Lane, African and Caribbean people in Britain, A History. Now, this was a really interesting conversation with Hakeem. We touched on the origins of African people and their migration into Britain which of course has a history full of migration. We looked at the role of African people in the medieval and Tudor period of Britain so what their role was and what they were doing at that time and and trying to correct some misconceptions and then looking at the journey and developing role of African and Caribbean people and people of African and Caribbean heritage in Britain since the end of the slave system i know you're going to enjoy this episode it's really enlightening and really really fascinating so i'll leave you with Hakim adi so hello and welcome back to the history with jackson podcast today we're talking to author and historian Hakim adi about his brand new book african and caribbean people in britain A history so i've got my copy here I've really, really enjoyed reading it. I know you guys are going to enjoy listening to this episode and learning some more. So how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good.
0: Yeah, October's always a busy month, but I'm good. i just come out of another meeting, but I'm fine. Raring to go.
1: Yeah, well, October's always like that, but I'm glad you've had the time to come onto the podcast. So the first question I want to ask you, and I ask this to every guest on the com- who comes on the podcast, what was the inspiration behind wanting to write this book?
0: Well, that's that's a difficult question in some ways because I was um, I was asked to write the book um, by the publishers by Penguin, um, so that was very nice of them to ask me, but I was really, um, I suppose I was really inspired by my experience as a teacher, so wanting to present a book that my students could use um and there was a book that was on the same subject that was written about 40 years ago called staying power by a guy called peter fryer which is a very well-known book on the subject but it was 40 years old and in those 40 years a lot of new research has been done um by many people including myself and i thought it was time that we had an up-to-date book which said they covered similar ground but provided all that latest research and maybe took a slightly different um orientation in some places so that was really what i set out to do to provide a book for my students and for the general reader that could summarize all the latest research present it in a hopefully in a comprehensive way in a way that's easy to read um and would serve as a yeah, a reference for people, and would bring the history right up to the present day, or up till up to twenty twenty. So that's really what what inspired me to to begin writing it.
1: I cer- I certainly agree that it's really accessible text, and you know, had I been back in university, this would have hundred percent been one of my starting places to Great. To-, Great to hear. But it's, it's great to see that history can be accessible and there's not that disconnect between academic history and, and, and more public forms of history. But one, one thing that you've mentioned in your book is you, you chose to refer to, to black people as African and Caribbean people. Why did you make this decision in this book?
0: Um, because people have a, a heritage. People have, people have a nationality, first of all. People have a heritage... And it's important to recognise that heritage and not just, uh, you know, present people as a a colour or as a monolith. Um, I mean, obviously, if we had a history which said a book that was called, um, well, I mean, if you use any, it's it's not really a history. um, I mean, there are various ways it could have been entitled, but it's a history of those of African and Caribbean heritage in Britain. And so in a way it's a British history or a book on British history. Obviously it has connections with the history of Africa, the history of the Caribbean and so on. It's also important to recognize that when we talk about the black population of Britain, uh, it's actually made up of these kind of two distinct components. Now, often When people talk about Black British history or whatever term is used, that um, because of the way the story has been told, and without mentioning a certain ship that's supposed to have arrived in 1948, it's presented in a kind of sort of sort of kind of Caribbean lens, you can say. But if we actually look at that population in Britain at the moment, the majority of the population are actually closely more closely connected with Africa than they are with the Caribbean. So in a way there are these kind of two distinct communities, and obviously within the African section there are people from all sorts of different countries. In the Caribbean section there are people from many different countries. But just to acknowledge that yes, there's an important African component that's sometimes forgotten about. And so that's really why I used I use those two terms to describe this kind of history. And I thought they were more accurate as well. Of course, we also include in the book some people who don't quite fit into either of those two camps. So we have a little bit on African-Americans who came to Britain during the period just because it would be of interest to people. But, But mainly it deals with those who either came from Africa or the Caribbean or their descendants, their families.
1: It's a really interesting distinction to make and, and to read about the history and, and separating those two groups, I found was, it was really interesting to see the different cultural differences and um, how, they devel- how those groups developed in Britain as well. But looking from you know, prehistory, before even the medieval period, you, you talk about African people migrating to and living in Britain. Could you, could you let us know a little bit more about this?
0: Well, the um, I mean, everyone migrated to Britain from somewhere. That's uh, the nature of the British or the nature of Britain, the British Isles. That people all came from somewhere else. Even the book starts, you know, ten thousand years ago with Cheddar Man, and Cheddar Man was uh, a dark-skinned, dark-haired person um, at a time when everybody in Britain looked like that, and that, and everybody in Europe looked like that. And those people like Cheddar who inhabited Europe and Britain. They actually came from somewhere else. They came, they traveled. Originally they were, their ancestors would have come from Africa. um, But they traveled to Europe and then inhabited Britain. So the book starts off with that, but then it looks at Africans who were here in Roman times, for example, or the possibility that Africans were here even before Roman times because people traveled around the world. Now, we, we know about this very ancient history, for example, Roman Britain from uh, some written evidence, much more archaeological evidence. And so you have, you know, particularly recently, the analysis of skeletons, the use of DNA techniques. And so we know that people like the woman who was, whose skeleton was found in York, who's known as Ivory Bangle Lady was somebody who was African, It was born in Africa and so on. And those kinds of scientific techniques are very interesting because obviously the more skeletons archaeologists uh, test, the more they tend to find that people came from somewhere that they didn't think they came from before. And in the early period, for example, in the 7th century, quite recently, a few months ago, a a skeleton of a young girl was analysed in near Dover, or near Deal, in Kent, and it was found that she had uh, basically DNA that is connected with a population of people who currently are to be found in Nigeria in West Africa. So she had basically Yoruba DNA. Now, probably she herself didn't come from that part of West Africa. Probably her father or grandfather came from West Africa. Why would somebody come from West Africa to, to Dover? What were, they doing? what were they doing? We don't know that, but we know they were there. And um, there have been some other tests of skeletal remains from the period of the Black Death, for example, in the 14th century. And again, a lot of these skeletons show probable African ancestry and stuff. so. So um, this is just what, what the evidence shows us that people were around. you know. There were even some Roman emperors like Septimius Severus who also died in York who came from Africa. You know, he was actually born in Libya. There were uh, Roman governors of Britain who were also from Africa. There were soldiers. There were a whole range of people, men, women, and children who during the Roman period originated from Africa. So The point is that British history has always, or history of Britain has always been like this. People have come, moved around, maybe not in large numbers, maybe sometimes in larger numbers. Um, And that should help us to have a kind of more open-ended idea of what it means to be British. Because after all, you know, the Romans came from somewhere else, the Angles came from somewhere else, the Saxons, the Jutes, the Normans, the Huguenots, everybody came from somewhere else. Uh, and that's the quality maybe of being british
1: it's interesting to see those those themes of migration and movement fill in that history and i do i do agree with you why would someone want to move from anywhere else and go to dover i don't i don't see that at all but you're moving into the medieval period and you've slightly touched on it the, the main historical popular narrative that a lot of people have who haven't really looked at the history, haven't really studied it too much, is that African people who were in Britain in the medieval and Judah times were were enslaved. Is that a misconception?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a misconception. Some people even said about Africans who were here in Roman Britain. It's kind of using, it's, it's looking back in history through you know the lens of the 18th century or so. And of course, you know, if we look at the medieval period or even the Tudor period, the relationship between England or between Britain, the British Isles and Africa was very different in that period, uh, to the period afterwards, you know, um, Africa, we take it in, you know, general terms was as developed, if not more developed than Europe. So um the idea that Europeans could just, you know, simply go to Africa and enslave people, um, you know, is a bit ridiculous. And in fact, it was often the other way around that you know, people in North Africa would enslave uh, Europeans and so on. But in the 15th century, early 16th century, that equality changed. And mm-hmm you know, Europe really kind of broke out of its isolation, as it were, um, out of its backwardness and went to Africa, not because they thought Africa was backward or poor, but because they thought Africa had all the things which Europe didn't have, like bullion and spices and all these kinds of things. So we have to understand that relationship. And then we find that People came here, people of African heritage came here, particularly in the the late 15th, early 16th century, probably from Spain and Portugal mainly. Um, Some of those people would have been or could have been enslaved because Spain and Portugal had begun to kidnap people and began that human trafficking. But many of those who came in Tudor times were skilled people skilled craftspeople, uh, needle makers, lace makers, some people we know were property owners. Um, People came because of their skills, they were divers, they were pilots, they were a whole range of occupations uh, existed during that period. And again, in the Tudor period, there, obviously there are people here who are musicians and we have images of some of them like John Blank and others. So a range of occupations. And it wasn't until the late 16th century, um, the period of Elizabeth Tudor, that this England really began to engage in human trafficking. And even then it was a relatively small scale. It developed much more in the 17th century. Uh, but it took until the 18th century until Britain led the world in the human trafficking of African men, women, and children.
1: And I, th- I think you make a really great point there about the, the cultural development of Africa compared to Europe. There were some fantastically developed civilizations in Africa uh, for millennia, uh, whilst, Af- whilst Europe was relatively backwards for a long time. Uh, throughout that period. But I want to touch on the the development of that slave system that you were just mentioning from Elizabeth onwards. What role does Britain and its institutions of power play within the creation and development of that system?
0: Well, um, it plays a significant role. I mean, it's to do with, um, you know, the emergence of England as a major European power and then as a major world power, you know, in, in that period and it's really the, the role which, you could say, human trafficking played in that development. So if you look at the, the period when England emerged as a major economic power, the period of industrialization and pre-industrialization, so the really the 17th century and 18th century, that is also the period of colonial acquisition or colonies abroad in the Caribbean, in North America, and in India, and so on um so britain's greatness in inverted commerce is is connected with you know attacking invading enslaving conquering other people um and within that human trafficking is 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 key because it enabled britain to um basically develop its its colonial possessions whether in North America or in the Caribbean, and those colonial possessions um, produced the things which made Britain and other European countries as well wealthy. So bullion, production of sugar, the production of other cash crops like tobacco, indigo, all of those things. And then African labor also provided technical know-how, agricultural know-how, metallurgical know-how, even some of the developments of the Industrial Revolution it, itself, metallurgical developments, were were actually produced or uh, assisted by the skills that were transferred from Africa and so on. So, of course, the major thing which was um, produced in that period was, you know, the great wealth which came out of the production of sugar and everything which went was engaged in human trafficking. So human trafficking led to the development of the Navy. Uh, The Navy led to the development of cotton production, textile production. Textile production led to the great developments of the Industrial Revolution and so on. And human trafficking also led to the development of other forms of manufacturing, uh, metallurgical production and production of, Uh, liquor and alcohol which were used in transactions everything is stimulated by the by human trafficking by the business of human trafficking Um, and you see the you know the major cities of Europe of Britain in particular emerge out of that Liverpool Birmingham Manchester and, and London itself so you don't find anything that developed during that period which isn't connected with human trafficking I mean you you going back to Elizabeth Tudor, every single monarch, from Elizabeth Tudor to William the Fourth, all of them were leading human traffickers. Not minor, not did it in their spare time. They were the key people engaged in human trafficking. And the organizations they set up to engage in kidnapping and transporting people. Were, were often royal monopolies, the royal Africa company, the royal adventurers in Africa. And the monarch, the monarch's family, the brothers of the monarch were the, the key people engaged in that human trafficking. In fact, when um, during the period of abolition or the abolitionist movement at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, William IV stood up in Parliament and said, what do you mean abolition? Look, this is like our history. And he went through all the monarchs, before him this is what this is our business. How can you be taught, even considering abolition? this is what made Britain great and so on. So this is was the business of Britain during that period. Um, and as I say every major institution, the Bank of England, the national debts, all the national institutions, everything is connected with human trafficking, empire and colonialism.
1: I hadn't I hadn't realized how many industries had just developed off the back of human trafficking, you know, those links that you're making of human trafficking, developing the navy, development of cotton and and so on. It's really interesting to see how interlinked they are, but how crucial the African and Caribbean people were into developing some of those new skills or new technologies.
0: Yeah, and something like cotton obviously is uh, even in the 19th century, is is slave produced? Is is produced mainly in in the United States by enslaved Africans and their descendants, as well in as well as in other in other places.
1: So this abolitionist movement you mentioned with William IV, uh, obviously, as you just said, he's he's very against it. But how does this abolitionist movement in Britain emerge, and what was the support and opposition to it like?
0: Well, it emerges, actually it's quite interesting because um we tend to think of the abolitionist movement emerging in the, the 18th century, which I suppose is correct. That's when it became a kind of organized movement. But even in the 17th century, you, be, you get people who are speaking out against it. And one of the things I try and do in the book a little bit is to... um give a kind of a little bit of an outline of what I would say is a kind of tradition of anti-racism in Britain, because we often tend to think that everybody was engaged in human trafficking or supported it. And that's often the way things are presented. But in fact, probably the opposite was the case that there were, you know, key individuals um, who even in the early period, 17th century, said, well, what's all this, you know enslaving people that can't be right uh if you if you believe that god made everybody in his image and therefore we're all human beings we're all god's children how can you then enslave some people and say some people are inferior to others this is like blasphemous this is like an attack on god if you say some people that he made are inferior to other people he made i mean this is a, you know scandalous attack on god and his uh, you know his wisdom and all this kind of thing so people use lots of different arguments um and for that reason obviously the the enslavers the human traffickers had to develop their ideas their racism to try and show that slavery was a good thing africans are inferior africans not even human and so on and so on so we find that anyway this abolitionist spirit, anti-racism, even in the earliest period. Then in the 18th century, it develops for a number of reasons. One is that there is a, a growing concern with, with rights, with human rights in general. In those days, people said the rights of man, but today we'd say human rights. And again, people questioning, well, then if some people have rights, then everyone should have rights. And um so those kinds of issues came up. Then, of course, there was the experience that people in Britain had of actually just being with Africans because Africans were brought to this country, were bought and sold in this country, were enslaved in this country. People had them as servants and so on. And they, very often, they ran away. They liberated themselves. They they just disappeared. Um, and... You know, ordinary people would come across Africans in the street and would help them and so on and so forth. So, or would intervene when they saw something going on which they thought was not right somebody being bought and sold or somebody being badly treated and so on and so forth. So, that is another thing that happened. Um, and there are many examples of, you know, one of the great abolitionists, Granville Sharp, first coming into contact with. Africans, you know, literally on the streets of London and um, kind of taking his position based on his own experience of helping various people and so on. Then there was the issue that um, those who ran away often provoked, uh, you know, court cases where the issue of the, the question was actually could people be enslaved? Or did slavery exist in Britain? Um, And that was contested throughout the 18th century. Could you actually say that slavery can exist? Um, Because that had implications for people who maybe who were not Africans, who were English as well. So all these things were contested. And then, of course, in the 18th century, you had particularly this idea of rights was further enhanced by the... American Revolution by the demand for independence of the American colonies and by the struggles that were developing amongst Africans in the Caribbean and so on, and particularly at the end of the century by the struggle that developed in in, in Haiti, what became Haiti. But here in the very interesting in the eighteen seven sorry, seventeen eighties, seventeen nineties, you did have this abolitionist movement developed, um, that people um, actually in their millions uh, signed petitions against human trafficking, stopped uh, consuming sugar in their tea and coffee, is actually one of the biggest political movements in Britain's history, uh, which hardly anybody talks about. And Africans played a key role in that because, for example, they wrote autobiographies or they had autobiographies written about them, or they gave lectures up and down the country. So people actually heard from Africans speaking about their own experiences, saying, yes, we are human, saying, yes, we don't like being enslaved, saying, yes, we don't like, you know, all these being trafficked across the Atlantic and so on. And at a time when people in this country were beginning to think about their own rights and their lack of rights, because generally people had very few rights, certainly political rights, that was something which resonated with people. And so you find at the end of the 18th century, people actually saying that, uh, that if you're for the rights of Africans, then you must be for the rights of working people here. If you're for the rights of working people here, then you should be for the rights of Africans too because rights are indivisible and so on. So that was the movement that developed. It, it was um, a broad movement. It also included you know, people who had religious conviction, people who had all kinds of other ideas about slavery being uneconomic or whatever the, the situation might be, but a very, very big movement. Um cool. Eventually, more or less suppressed by the government, but always there um, under the surface. And then with the uh, revolution in Haiti at the end of the 18th century, that really made a big impact on the powers that be in this country uh, because they realized that if they didn't do something, there were likely to be more revolutions in the Caribbean, and the whole slave system might collapse. And so they, they kind of really took measures to try and avoid that possibility. And that's why we have a parliamentary act of abolition in beginning of the 19th century in 1807. So, but the, the kind of movement for, for abolition then of slavery as opposed to human trafficking continued into the 19th century and um, was often led by women in this country until you know final abolition in eighteen thirty four so it's quite a it's quite a complex and a long movement but an important one in britain's history
1: it it certainly is an important movement and as you just said it's it's very very little is known about it and knowing that it's one of the biggest political movements in in this country's history is is something that should be known about more and by far more people old and young Mm -hmm. so thank you very much for bringing that to us now you're welcome in the 19th century and we touched on one of these themes but democratic reform religion chartism and and revolution play a role in the history of african caribbean people and and we've touched on a little bit with haiti and and that pressure on the government how does it continue to play a role throughout the 19th century?
0: Well, it's interesting that we start with Haiti because the revolution in Haiti was a big kind of inspiration to working people here and people who had sort of democratic instincts. Uh, You know, you even find, you know, the great English poet William Wordsworth writing a poem to Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution. And, um, you know, a very interesting poem basically saying that you know he he will his memory will live forever uh, he will inspire people forever so in other words people in this country who had very few if any democratic rights were inspired by africans rising up in haiti and they continued to struggle for their rights uh, throughout the 19th century and one of the most important movements was the chartist movement which emerged in the 1830s and was a kind of first national working-class movement demanding basically the right to vote. And some other rights, but mainly the right to vote and the right to stand in elections. And one of the leaders of that was a man called William Cuffey, who was of Caribbean heritage and origin. He was actually born in Chatham. but His father came from the Caribbean. Um, there were other others who... We uh, were also engaged in kind of radical activities. There was a man called William Davidson, who was part of the Cato Street conspiracy, which was a conspiracy to assassinate the entire cabinet and to produce an uprising, which uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look on it, was thwarted and Davidson was executed. Um, so there were, there were, a variety of people engaged in, uh, people of African and Caribbean heritage engaged in political activity. William Coffey, one of the most famous, one of the leaders of the London Chartists, was eventually uh, transported to Tasmania. Um, But those struggles for political change, you know, continued throughout the the 19th century. Um, And you find others who were, um, you know, continued to engage in different forms of struggle against racism, against sort of British imperialism. At the end of the 19th century, people like Celestine Edwards, who wrote and campaigned, uh, in, uh, opposed, you know, the so-called scramble for Africa and so on. So um, those traditions remain throughout the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, you have the beginnings of the the Pan African movement, which united people of african heritage whether from africa the caribbean or elsewhere and was was really founded i suppose in britain in the 1890s with the uh, emergence of the african association so there's all kinds of fascinating things going on in the 19th century
1: and it was it was really fascinating reading about those in your book and, and learning about them and you've made a, a great segue there at the end of that uh, that answer about the formation of uh, African and Caribbean political organisations. And moving into the 20th century, which is in living memory for some people, you know, how are these organisations important in offering resistance to racism, discrimination, oppression and, and colonialism?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the features of the, the 20th century that we find the emergence of a whole range of organizations, beginning with the African Association in 1897. Often these organizations, or some of them are uh, have a membership mainly of students, people who were brought to this country almost as a consequence of colonial rule. that um, obviously, a colonies were established, had been established in the Caribbean, were being established in Africa. And within those colonies, um, you know, a very small handful of people sometimes were seeking uh, professional employment, professional qualifications as as doctors, as lawyers, as engineers, or whatever it was. And because of the way colonial rule worked, higher education wasn't provided. And so people, if they were wealthy enough or able enough to find a way, would find themselves in Britain at the centre of the empire. And so then being at the center of the empire, they often became even more conscious of their colonial status uh, and the fact that Mm. with that came the racism that existed in Britain in the early 20th century referred to as the color bar, meaning people couldn't easily find somewhere to to live or might be discriminated against or might, might, anyway, in various ways. So people having come from the colonies very often, um, tended to band together, tended to say, well, we've got these common problems. Uh, We should get ourselves together and form organizations and groups. So some of them are student organizations like, you know, the West African Students' Union formed in 1925. And then these organizations once formed, um, yes, lobby against colonial rule or demand reforms, um, campaign against racism, try and organize centers to meet and to discuss things, obviously become connected with organizations here, very often radical organizations here, you know, the left wing of the Labour Party, the Communist Party, others, and so on. And so, and of course, these organizations also maintain their links with Africa, the Caribbean, with the US. with And so you get these networks developed, um, during the 1920s, particularly during the 1930s, that stretched all over the world. And just to give an example, West African Students' Union, which was established here in London in 1925, also had branches in West Africa, so in Nigeria, the Gold Coast, Sierra Leone, Gambia. So if something happened in, in Lagos, they'd send a telegram to their people here in London, say, look, this has happened, can you do something about it? the West African Students' Union would get in touch with their friendly MPs, usually in the Labour Party, and there'd be a question in the House of Commons, you know, like the next day. <laughs> How do they know what happened? <laughs> so they were very, very efficient, very effective. They had their own journal. They had their own centre uh, in, in Camden where you could go and get a meal, you know, it was, I had a restaurant, they would have fundraising, dances, They, all, anyway, all kinds of things, so um, Britain became a kind of center of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism because you had so many of these students, and other people came as well, just for, you know, uh, and would organize themselves um, here, and not just in London, in Liverpool, in Manchester, in in Cardiff and so on, Um, because at the same time as you had students, you also had workers coming here, especially seafarers, and many of the oldest black communities are in sort of port cities like Liverpool and Cardiff and Manchester and London, and they they would organize as well because they they faced very often more severe problems of racism there was legislation passed which discriminated against what were called colored alien seamen, um, you know, for forcing people to register, uh, encouraging discriminatory wage payments and all these kinds of things. So you get these two types of organization, sometimes working together, um, existing throughout this period. And that had an influence as well, as I mentioned, on, Existing British organisations, whether the Labour Party, the Communist Party, and and others, but they became much more aware of what was going on in, in the colonies. They became much more aware, maybe of the issues of racism, uh, that something should be done about it, that maybe there should be laws against it, and so on. So it was a it was a kind of two way learning experience uh, as a consequence of people being based here and. and organizing here, and it gave rise to some very important conferences, meetings, I suppose the most famous would be the 1945 Manchester Pan-African Congress, which is one of the most famous of those gatherings, included important people like Kwame Nkrumah, the future president of Ghana, Jomo Kenyatta, the future president of Kenya. Well, they were here in, in London or here in Britain. So these people came together often had very radical ideas and ideas which um, influenced people in Africa or, or in the Caribbean, um, but also, as I say, would influence organizations and uh, personalities here. So, yeah, it's a very interesting and, and a significant history, I think. And some of these organizations played an even you know bigger role in, in Britain. For example, in the 1950s, it was an African organisation, the Committee of African Organisations, which was a coalition which actually launched the anti-apartheid movement in this country in the late 1950s. So, um, yeah, big a big influence on sort of life in Britain.
1: And it was interesting to see these these groups interact with a wide network of people, like you said from Africa, with radical uh, political groups such as the Communist Party, and. You know, seeing those interactions, you can really see the influence and the legacy of that today. But one political movement that came out of these these organisations was the Black Power Movement, which developed in Britain in the, the mid-20th century and slightly after that. Why did this come about and what change did it bring about?
0: Well, I suppose it mainly came about because, um, you know, globally there was a the emergence of something called black power or demand for black power, meaning really that I suppose that people felt that asking for reforms in things, asking for changes, wasn't sufficient. That what was really required was some form of empowerment, um, that you you need to start start to make demands and actually bringing about kind of fundamental change in the world, in, you could say. So that was particularly a phenomenon that emerged in the US, but it also had its ramifications in this country as well. And you had um, people who generally came out of earlier movements. For example, uh, there's a guy called uh, Obiek Buna, who was a Nigerian activist, one of the leading black power activists in this country. Had previously been involved in the Committee for Africa or African organisations that I mentioned a few moments ago. Um, so yes, these people, these individuals, these organisations, really saying that we've had enough of you know racism of uh, you know particularly of racism of the way that people are treated in the colonies or ex-colonies. Um, we need a kind of fundamental change of things, and so of course by this time. We also have much larger numbers of people in this country from Africa and from the Caribbean facing all the problems that people faced in those days. Um, Racism and the color bar, discrimination in employment, discrimination in schools, the whole issue of uh, um, ESN schooling, you know, young people being classified as educationally subnormal and put in special schools color bar in employment, the fact that people couldn't become, you know, bus drivers or bus conductors or whatever it happened to be. And so um, the Black Power organizations really um, demanded radical change. They were often influenced by, obviously, those organizations in the US, like the Black Panthers, or by the teachings of people like Malcolm X. But they applied these ideas to the situation in Britain. The the other feature, the the Black Power Movement, globally, including in in Britain, was a much greater identification with the struggles of people um, in what today, I guess, people call the Global South. So in Africa, in places like Cuba, in Vietnam, in all these kinds of anti-imperialist struggles that were going on. And so the black power organizations like the Black Liberation Front, Black Unity and Freedom Party and others tended to be formed the latter part of the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, And they were, I suppose, also, um, yeah, I suppose, influenced by particular events, especially policing. Um, and the way the police were used to attack, you know, black people, often arrest people on trumped-up charges. You know, it was very often the black organizations, black power organizations that called out this is what the police force is actually like, you know, way back then. Now everybody says, Oh, well, of course it is. Even the even the police say, Well, of course we're racist. <laughs> Why would we deny it? But in those days, uh, it was denied. The, you know, the kind of existence of racism was almost denied. And it was these organizations in towns and cities, up and down the country, that were often the first to articulate the nature of the 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 police and so on. In the book, for example, I mentioned a number of cases, including the Oval Four. The Oval Four case was four young men who were uh, who came out of Oval, Oval Tube Station in, in London and were attacked by a gang of men? It transpired this gang of men were plainclothes police officers. They beat up these four young, uh, four young men, uh, four young men of Caribbean heritage. Uh, beat them up, arrested them, tortured them. They were they were charged with all kind of bogus offences and convicted. And some of them served prison term a couple of years. And so this was in 1972, so one of those young men, Winston True, fought for the next 50 years to clear his name. And it wasn't until, yeah, 2020, 2022, 2021, 22, that he was finally, all of them were exonerated. And it was actually found that the police officer in charge was completely corrupt. Have been engaged in a whole range of bogus arrests and cases. And I think actually himself was imprisoned eventually. But the the thing about the case was that the the police, Metropolitan Police, the judiciary, they must have known about this for decades, but did nothing about it. And it came out accidentally and so on. So um, you could say that people had, it's quite understandable why people would form Radical organizations, radical demands, demanding, you know, massive transformation. As I say, influenced by what was going on in the States, some of them influenced by various forms of Marxism and, of you know, the uh, politics of, you know, Mao's China and all these kinds of things. So, yeah, that was and what was happening in the US. So, yeah, that was that period of the 60s and 70s.
1: It it shows a a much stronger response to the the racism that was you know, saying being denied by institutions, of power and 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 by the public as well. To to now at a point where racism is more often than not called out upon. Um, institutions are being held accountable for those actions as well. As you mentioned, that police officer and those those group of police officers.
0: Well, but, sometimes not always. No, not, <laughs> not always. always. No, of course cool. not no.
1: always. But how does the experience and visibility of this, this term black British uh, that you, you've used in your book, how does the experience and visibility of black British people change moving into the, the 21st century?
0: Well, it changes. Yeah, I mean, there is this, this conception of being black and British. You know, when I was young, that conception didn't exist. Nobody would know black person would call themselves British. it's almost insulting to be called or thought to be insulting but people would say they came from Nigeria or they came from Jamaica even if they didn't you know their parents came from these places but that's how people would identify but of course when you have second and third and fourth generations of people here that changes and I think that's one of the reasons that people you know, were here. Their parents were born here. Maybe their grandparents were born here. Was one factor. I think um, you got the whole development of a kind of Black British culture, if I can call it that, of music, of uh, you know, various kind of institutions, publications. Um, you suddenly had several, you know, black members of Parliament. You had, you know, various yeah, you know, various organizational forms. So I think in the 1980s, in particular, 1980s, 1990s, there began to be this new conception that there was something that was peculiarly sort of British and black culturally that people could identify with and were happy to identify with. And so that is to some extent carried on in the, the 21st century. Um, I think the other, one of the manifestations of it is a, is a kind of change, as I mentioned earlier, that there are now many more people of African origin. Um, and that's made a little bit of a, so black British tends to include those African identities as well. Um, you know, it, it's exists in the language that people use, the words that people use, which have kind of crept into the, um, the way that people speak. Um and yes, I think I think there is a people are comfortable is the right word, but yeah, people are comfortable with the idea of black being black and British, although at the same time identifying with Africa, with the Caribbean, with other places, with um so that Exists uh, in the 21st century, although there's, there's ob- obviously there have been some kind of attacks on that. You know, it's been undermined by things like the so-called Windrush scandal, uh, where people who migrated here as children, you know, 50 years ago, now suddenly find they did not have British passports, or even more recently, uh, people who have migrated here, or people who were born here. And then suddenly a pie for a British passport, and find well actually you're not going to get one because you're not you're not considered British and so on. So, and I think also by the continuing racism that exists, obviously in regard to the, the police, uh, obviously in regard to the uh, various incidents that come out. Where are you really from? All these kinds, of, <laughs> all these kinds of things that people get asked more often than might be thought where are you from where are you really from uh so it's 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 there's always a tension there that racism is there and uh you know we started off talking about what's going on at Chichester I and mean, that, that's a good example uh, really because <clears throat> um you know we we have a problem in this country with history in the sense that young people in particular of African and Caribbean heritage don't study history, tend not to study history or get put off studying history, um, because of the Eurocentric way in which it's presented. And so then we, you know, recognize that acknowledge that establish a course to encourage people to come back, older people to come back and engage with history, very successful, you know, produced, whatever we produced, seven PhD students in a few years. And then, uh, you know, the university come along and say, well, oh, we're going to close that down. So, I mean, if you if you close down a course on the history of Africa and the African diaspora that mainly has black students, uh, what is that other than, you know, kind of thinly railed racism? And then you use the closure of that course to, to sack you know, the first person of African heritage to become a history professor in the country. And then having sacked him, you leave 16 black postgraduate history students without any supervision, with no plan, with no nothing and so on. So that this is the kind of, you know, racism, you could say exists as if, you know, the university does it as if it doesn't matter. And in fact, even break the law because it it seems that they breach breached the Equality Act and all all sorts of other things. But the fact that they act like that and then say, well, really, have we done something wrong? Have we? Oh, no, it's nothing about that. It's all about, you know, whatever, saving money or something. I mean, it's just... But it it illustrates the kind of um, racism, really. You can call it ignorance, you can call it various things, but we should just really call it what it is, you know, the racism that exists... Mm. Um, and still exists, and so th- those kinds of issues um, make it difficult to be black and British, or more difficult to be British when you're black, because you know you're more likely to get stopped on the street, you're more likely to get stopped driving a car, you're more likely to you know have poor health you're whatever whatever, as well as these are the issues relating to, you know, to history, to education and so on. So, you know, that's kind of the way it is, unfortunately.
1: It's sad that it is that way. And sometimes I agree, you have to call a spade a spade. You know, if you, you see something, you have to say what it is. So, you know, you see those events when it comes to sporting matters. You know, every four years or every two years, it seems to be the, that there's some massive example of it online, which is just not acceptable yeah. in any way, shape or form. Now, we'll move to a slightly lighter tone with a final fun question, as we do for everyone on the podcast. Now, during your career, you've taught, and you've mentioned this in your book as well, you've taught in a wide variety of places. Which has been the most interesting for you to teach at?
0: Um, probably prison, I would think. Um, teaching in prison is always, <laughs> it's always a good experience. <laughs> I've taught in three prisons, uh, the one I taught him most was Broadmoor, which I suppose technically isn't a prison, but but it actually it is really. Uh, I mean, it's a secure mental hospital. I think is how they describe it, but it really is a prison. Um, in fact, when I went in there, the craze, or one of the craze was there. I can't remember anyway. They all kinds of people were there, but anyway. But the I taught a class on African history there. It was really good. The stu- students were very very good and i did that for about six weeks i think um so that they were very good i taught in manchester strange ways as it used to be called i only taught one class there but that was also very very good class in fact um i had a uh, I wanted to give a presentation on a flash drive and the warders wouldn't let me take the flash drive into the prison. They said it was a security risk. <laughs> they said, you can only bring in a floppy disk. I said, well, it is a floppy disk. They said, no, it isn't. So <laughs> they said, well, what, what do you think it is? Anyway, they wouldn't let me take it in. And so I was debating whether I should go ahead or call off the whole you know, presentation. And we decided to go ahead without any anything and i went into this room there's like 25 30 guys there you know and so i said to them well you know i want to talk to you about african history but um you know i'm not allowed to show you my presentation so let's just discuss you know what i'd like you to do is introduce yourselves and you know tell tell us tell everyone what you know about the history of africa well i tell you 2 hours later People were still introducing themselves and talking about this and that. People were so knowledgeable and had, you know, all kinds of stories. That was amazing. It was probably the, probably the best class I've ever had, actually. So, yeah, that's the answer. Prison.
1: That sounds like an awesome class to have, and I would have loved to be there to watch that.
0: I, get, I actually was in another prison a couple of years ago. That was also very good. It was near <laughs> Bristol, I think. I can't remember exactly what it was called. But that was also very good. Yeah,
1: Sounds like I'm going to have to try and teach in a prison for a few weeks.
0: No, it's good. Good experience.
1: Now, obviously, people are going to want to go away and grab a copy of your book, African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History. Where can they grab a copy and where can they interact with you online?
0: Hopefully almost anywhere. It should be available in all good bookshops, as I say, in foils, in, uh, on Amazon. Uh, it's now out in paperback. Um, should be available everywhere to just, you know, go to your local bookshop, order it. You can order it online. You can search it on Google. It should be everywhere. I am in all kinds of places. Uh, Yesterday I was in Cambridge speaking at the university. I'm at Oxford University this week. We did a book launch in Hackney last week. Yeah, just look out for me on social media. I think that's the easiest way of saying it, putting it.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's sometimes the easiest. So I'll make sure that the link for your book is, is in the description below and a link for your social media as well so people can go away and find them and, and grab themselves a copy. Brilliant. Mike, thank you very much for coming on, Nakima. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Much appreciated. Take it easy. Thank you very much for listening to this newest episode of the History of Jackson podcast. Now I'm sure you can agree this episode with Hakeem was really enlightening and interesting. I learned so much from Hakeem and from his book that I'd never heard of before and it's really improved my knowledge of British history as a whole. Now if you guys enjoyed the episode, please do consider heading to History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or the History of Jackson profile uh, for Buy Me A Coffee website in the description below. And if you want to go and support Hakim's campaign, do head to the History Matters campaign that is in the description below. Now, this was a special episode. It was a bonus episode. So, on Sunday, we do have another awesome episode lined up for you guys to enjoy. So, I will see you all Sunday.